Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, U.S. Cellular customers. I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like y'all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm fucking great and ready to conquer Colorado. <laughs> Well, we are going to have a lot of fun tomorrow night, January 19th, <laughs> Colorado Springs live at the social tickets are on sale. Now I know why you're really looking forward to getting there. Bruce is going to be a barrel of laughs. Uh, I'm going to have to keep it between the, uh, the ditches a little bit. I'm staying with my in-laws this weekend. Uh, do Dave Silva and I get to stay at your in-laws too? I would really like it if you would come by because, um, well, it would just be more fun. I, I would love to see Silva interact. Hey, Conrad, are, are the in-laws coming to the live show? Uh, allegedly, that is the case, which oh boy, I can't believe, and I'm trying to discourage, but I want to encourage you to come to the show. Tickets are on sale now, just 35 bucks. I don't know when we're coming to Colorado Springs again, guys. Uh, it's not too far from Denver. Jump in your car. Come check us out. But first, go to BrucePritchard.com and check it out. Don't put a T in his name. Put one on your back. BrucePritchard.com is where you can pick up those tickets. And don't forget, next Saturday, the 26th, we're in San Diego at the world-famous Madhouse Comedy Club. Tickets are on sale right now for that matinee show. It's 2 p.m. at BrucePritchard.com. And, of course, the afternoon of the Royal Rumble next Sunday, January 27th. You don't want to miss this. Phoenix Live, we're coming to see you. Only a handful of VIP tickets remain. You don't want to miss this one in Phoenix Go smash these tickets right now at BrucePritchard.com. And we just put tickets on sale a couple of days ago for Atlanta. And I was told they're going very, very fast. It's going to happen right before the Super Bowl, the Saturday before the Super Bowl on February 2nd. So you don't have very long for that. Uh, just a couple of weeks. Go pick up your tickets now for that one. Uh, BrucePritchard.com, of course. And then it's a super show of sorts. 
you and I and Eric Bischoff at the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut on March 1st. Also available at BrucePritchard.com. And those other two shows that everybody's talking about, March 9th in Crown Point, Indiana and Cleveland, Ohio, the very next day on March 10th. So we don't get to Indiana and Ohio a lot. You want to come pick these tickets up. I don't know when we'll be back. Probably our last stop this year. BrucePritchard.com has all of those. Plus three stops for a solo tour with Bruce in Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, whatever you're looking for. We got you over at BrucePritchard.com. Enough of the shilling, man. Let's talk about why we're really here. Royal Rumble 04. But before we do, let's go back five years and uh, listen to your feedback from Royal Rumble 99. What were people saying to you? Well, I think that people agreed with us on the brutality of the Rock and Mankind match. It was positively brutal, and most of the comments were centered around that. But uh, for the most part, shockingly, it was positive. And it wasn't, as, as I said, you know, it wasn't one of my favorite Royal Rumbles by any stretch of the imagination, but I was, I was a little shocked, pleasantly surprised that most of the feedback that I got was positive with the exception of just the brutality of that one match with rock and Mick. Yeah, it was, um, it's hard to watch, but it is something that I think everybody should see. Uh, those guys left it all out there, but maybe they took some unnecessary risks. There's a lot of debate this week about that, but there's going to be no debate that what we're covering today is one of the more controversial topics because WWE isn't going to talk about it. Royal rumble 2004 went down on January 25th at the Wells Fargo center, right there in Philadelphia. It was sponsored by PlayStation two boy. That brings back some memories. It drew 17,289 fans. Uh, when I first mentioned Royal Rumble 04, what's the first thing that pops into your mind, Bruce? Holy cow. Well, to me, the first thing that popped into mind, it was, it was pretty much the changing of the guard in a lot of respects. It was where we had made a very conscious decision to kind of change the way that we were writing television and doing business. How so? We had made, you know, we'd made the decision to go with Benoit by that time. And we'd also made the decision to go with Eddie Guerrero. So not the normal big guys, not the normal big champions that people were used to the larger than life guys. These were two workhorses that were a little bit smaller in stature, but they were really, especially Eddie, they were getting over in a big, big way. And we were making the effort to, to move in that direction. And this was. This was that point where it's like, okay, starts today. We got to get these guys over where they need to be. Well, talk to me a little bit about how you guys were able to make this shift internally. Was anybody for it? Who was against it? Who was sort of championing or cheerleading? Hey, this is what we need to do. I don't think that there was anybody against Benoit winning the championship. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were a lot of people that were for it. The only negative to Chris was his verbal skills. Mm -hmm. And there was some question as to whether or not Chris's personality was going to hold him back from being that champion. So we, we thought, well, as long as you surround him and you book him with colorful guys around him, you can use that to your advantage, uh, his lack of verbal skills on the Eddie side. I think that there was some apprehension 
due to Eddie's size. And even though Chris was smaller, Eddie was even smaller than Chris. So there was a little apprehension there. And that one was a little bit of a fight, uphill battle. And it was during a time that Vince McMahon and I had, I don't know if I convinced Vince or Vince convinced me, but we were on the same page on the Eddie Guerrero and not everybody was, they, they thought, you know, it, Eddie's not ready for it. Um, Brock helped us make that decision by wanting to go on and play football with the Minnesota Vikings. However, um, I don't know that Eddie was as unanimous of a choice as Benoit was going into it. So when you're, you know, you said really nobody was, was pushing back on it, but there was some question about his verbal skills. Was there ever any consideration to saying, Hey, before, you know, he's ready for prime time, so to speak, we need to get him a mouthpiece. No, because, because we wanted him to be the baby face and it wasn't, in my opinion, I don't think it was that bad. And I think that the idea behind putting him against the contrast of putting him against someone who is verbally equipped, I think that would have made, made him even bigger. Um, let him let Chris be Chris. He had gotten over to that point. Just being Chris, don't fuck with it. Right. Leave it alone. Let just, maybe that's okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, we get to the point where sometimes we want to, we want to go with someone. And then when we start to go with them, we change them. Well, now he's the guy he has got to do this. No, let them do what they do. Let them do what brought them to the dance. And that was my argument with Chris and uh, Paul Heyman also, I think, was very adamant and uh, supportive of that as well. You know, it is interesting, though, because as you're saying that a lot of people listening, myself included, can think of a handful of times where it feels like Vince sort of flip flopped on that way of thinking. It almost feels like it just changes as the wind blows. Sometimes he thinks they've got to be tweaked before they're a top guy. And other times he wants to stick with it. What was it about? Benoit that made him say, no, this is different. We're not going to change anything. We're going to keep it just like it is. Was it just the, the push from you and Heyman, or did he see something where he thought this could be different enough? I believe he saw something. This could be different enough and felt that once that bell rang, that Benoit owned you, his in-ring work would convince you of, of anything. And maybe he didn't need to be that charismatic speaker that we had always had in that position and that he could use the heels and everyone around him to get that over. Was there, you know, we've often heard about, uh, backstage politics. And I know you shoot a lot of that down as rumor and innuendo here on the show. Do you remember, was there anyone in particular, uh, on the roster who really, uh, didn't see it in Benoit? Like, Hey, he's a good, he's a good hand quote unquote, but he's a, he's a mid card, upper mid card guy. The idea that he's the guy on the WrestleMania poster. Eh, I don't know about that. Wow. Uh, I don't cause Chris was one of those talent that everybody liked and almost to the contrary. I know that, uh, triple H and Sean really fought for him and felt that felt that he was the guy and they, they pushed for him big time. I remember that vividly and Chris was such a workhorse. He was so respected in the locker room 
that he may have been one of the very few guys that the majority felt, you know what, that guy deserves it. Well, I'm glad you say that because the two names I was thinking specifically you called out. So that makes me feel better. I do want to ask though, you said something a minute ago. You said, I think McMahon felt or Vince felt that once the bell rang, um, Chris owned you, Benoit owned you. Talk to me a little bit about that. We've heard a lot about Vince McMahon's sort of take on business and what he likes from, as Pat Patterson would say, a Gaga standpoint. What type of wrestling did Vince enjoy? Do you remember there being a specific match or moment with Benoit where even he was like, God damn, pal? Not a specific match. I believe that Benoit, like Bret Hart, is the type of talent that when they go into a match, they're going to work that match until they've got you. And they're going to tell that story. Sometimes it may take a little longer, but they're going to go until they've got you. And they're going to tell you a story and it's going to be a passionate story. And that's what Vince loved. Vince loved the match telling a story. If he could get lost in it and get quiet, just watch the match, which I found my, which I did on this what going back and watching this, I stopped taking notes because I was just watching the matches. Um, that's special. Well, let's sort of set the stage for this pay-per-view. You know, we're, we're coming off a pretty interesting 2003 in the WWE. And we spent a lot of time uh, talking about 2003 last year here on something to wrestle. We've just seen triple H regain the world title from Goldberg in a triple threat match that involved Kane at the previous month's Armageddon pay-per-view. Um, we've talked about this briefly before, but after that Armageddon pay-per-view, it made, uh, all the quote unquote dirt sheets that Goldberg pretty much threw a temper tantrum backstage. We've talked about this briefly on our Goldberg episode, but what do you remember about this temper tantrum at Armageddon? <laughs> well, the triple H and Goldberg had had their match. Uh, after the match, it wasn't a good match. It was, yeah, as Pat Patterson would say, but we had gone back and heard that, Chris, uh, not Chris, uh, Goldberg was throwing stuff and I was walking back to the dressing room. Hunter was probably about, I don't know, 10, 20 feet behind me, but I was just going back to the dressing room to check on everybody. I heard all the commotion went in and Goldberg was just throwing chairs and, you know, fuck this, fuck that. He was upset with the match. But when Hunter walked in, it was, he stopped everything and Hunter came in and says, is there a problem? And he says, no, no problem. Thank you for the match. They shook hands and Hunter walked out. Everything was, (laughs) you know, he, he stopped being upset, but you know, again, going back and looking at that, did he throw a temper tantrum? Yeah, maybe, but the match did suck. And I think sometimes guys are going to get pissed off. Uh, I'm not going to be one sitting in a glass house. I've done it for no reason. I've thrown pictures before Conrad. Um, sometimes you just, you blow up for whatever reason you let it out and then everything's fine. And that may have been what Goldberg was doing. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, the tour of Iraq you guys are coming off of. Did you ever do a trip to Iraq for any of these tribute to the troop shows? I volunteered for every single one wanted to go and never had the opportunity to go. That was my, that was one of my dreams. 
Uh, allegedly Vince McMahon slept in one of Saddam Hussein's unfurnished, uh, former palaces on a bunch of cots with the rest of the crew. And you guys actually taped this, uh, December 20th SmackDown there in Iraq. Vince McMahon walks down to the ring. Thanks to the troops. Eventually he's interrupted by Santa Claus. And of course, Vince has an interaction while he wants to know, Hey, why did I never get any presents from Santa? And he refuses Santa's handshake and then clotheslines him. And then Santa disrobes to reveal Steve Austin crowd goes nuts. Austin gives a, uh, a pro America pro troops, anti Saddam Hussein speech. And, uh, it was a fun, feel good moment. Any memories you can share with us about the stories you guys were hearing from these tribute to the troop shows. Whenever they went over there, they had to fly on these big cargo planes, which had a few rows of seats in them that they didn't recline. <laughs> they were nothing like what people know as airline seats on commercial airliners. And it's a cargo plane that carries tanks and a lot of cargo and shit overseas. So it's not built for comfort by any stretch of the imagination. So when you got on, guys would kind of look around and fight for a place to either crawl up on something and lay down and go to sleep or what have you. Um, some guys would bring hammocks that they would string up. Uh, big show brought a big air mattress that he blew up that once he got to sleep and was in dreamland, Vince came and popped. But the, the other thing was, was there was no alcohol. So any alcohol that was going to come, most of the guys would, fill up Gatorade bottles with vodka or whatever liquor of choice that they had. And it all had to be drank before you got into Iraq. So they would get drunk on the way over there, but then you had nothing while you were there or unless you knew somebody that could get you something from an officer's club or something like that, that uh, somebody that had it there, it was a little difficult, but uh, it, it was a grueling trip. But I also think it was really rewarding for those who got to go. And there were some times, there were some some tight times. I always loved to listen to Ron Simmons tell the story of them flying in a Black Hawk helicopter uh, into a zone where fighting was going on. When they landed, they're like, okay, they get their guys out. They got all their guys with machine guns, and people are shooting all around them. They said, all right, when you get out, keep your head down and deadhead into this building about 30 yards away. Don't look up. Don't stop. Just run as fast as you can into that building. And Ron Simmons is looking around and looks outside the window and says, damn, I'd have sent him a damn autograph if you asked me. <laughs> and kind of just eased the tensions there for a little bit. But some of it was hairy, and, and our guys were uh, – as the people with the USO and the people over there told us a lot of entertainers that come over, which is, is great for them to do that, donate their time and do it. But they said, ours were the first that wanted to go to the front lines to go visit the guys. Um, crazy, but they really appreciated when, when you didn't just go to the stage, when you came out to where they were, and where they worked every day, and, and the military really liked that. And the, the whole tribute to the troops, that was a John Layfield creation. Oh, well, you got to expand on that. John met uh, Sergeant Major General, um, 
got a picture of him somewhere here in my office, real nice guy. And he started talking about how could we, how could we help the military? He says, well, you know, the biggest things is the guys on the line, they feel that they're often ignored and that everybody back home and guys at the big bases get everything. Um, he says, what if we did a show? And, and then John just worked with the Sergeant major with Vince, Kevin Dunn, and they figured out a way to bring a ring to get everything set up. And it was a major God, the red tape that they had to go through to get everybody over there. But it was Layfield's brainchild and it's continued every year since. Well, I think a lot of people are, um, are glad that it has. I mean, it's obviously not just a good PR move, but uh, I can't imagine being over there and getting any sort of entertainment, any sort of distraction from your day-to-day life over there. It's gotta be a welcome break. Let's talk about uh, December 29th raw here from San Antonio. Uh, this show is going to start with uh, Randy Orton walking out to Mick Foley's music. And he announces himself as the new King of hardcore, which I thought was actually pretty fun. Uh, whose idea was it to pair up Randy Orton and Mick Foley? I, I can't say it's something I would have come to on my own, but this was good stuff. Uh, Mick Foley wanted to work with Randy and Mick was as Mick usually did during that time. Mick was part-time Mick had an idea to do something with Randy. I think we wanted to get to WrestleMania with it. So it was Mick's idea wanting to work with Randy and that's how we did it. So a lot of it was Mick working with Brian Gwertz and uh, coming up with all these ideas for the whole Mick, Randy, and Mick Foley being a coward, that whole scenario. This is also a show where we would see Van Damme beat Scott Steiner in about six minutes. We would see different clips of Shawn Michaels on this show, including him beating Sid at the Alamo Dome at the 97 Royal Rumble and a clip of his win over Hunter at SummerSlam 02. So we're really trying to build up the return of Shawn Michaels as the main event. Um, Christian and Jericho are having some problems over Christian feeling like Jericho sold him out over a woman. Um, the coach would interview Vince McMahon at WWE headquarters about the board meeting. And Vince would say that the fans want Austin back, but he knew it was best for fans. If Austin didn't return, which of course, eventually you can imagine um, Austin is going to barge in with his pickup truck and say he's waiting for a phone call with a decision on his future. Uh, later we would see coach interview Linda, who is speaking in favor of an Austin return. And eventually Austin does get a call and says he's reinstated, but he's upset because it wasn't on his terms and he drives off upset. Um, the main event that night is Triple H and Shawn Michaels going to a double pin at 29 minutes and 22 seconds. Because it's a double pin, that means Triple H retains the belt. And after the referee goes down, Bischoff takes over as referee and he called it straight. But afterwards, Shawn gave Flair a super kick and punched Bischoff. So Bischoff fired him and Austin returns to the ring and said he's back and on his terms. He rehires Michaels and gives him a title rematch, but doesn't say when. And then announces there's a new sheriff in town. This is right after, uh, Austin has lost at WrestleMania 2003 and is going to be done with his in ring work. 
but you guys are still trying to find the right seat on the bus for him. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say Vince really wanted to utilize the character stone cold. If Steve wasn't going to be able to wrestle anymore, which it was doubtful at this point, he still wanted to capitalize on that character as much as he could, whether it be a general manager or in this case, the sheriff and have Steve on television as much as he possibly could. Cause Steve equaled ratings. How much fun was Austin having with this and how much easier was he to deal with when he was this sort of commissioner type character as compared to an in-ring wrestler? Because we've heard that he could be fairly temperamental as a wrestler. If he didn't like creative one way or another, is he more amenable in this position or is it still just as serious to him? This was some of the most fun that I had (laughs) in my tenure then, because with Steve, you could write all day for Steve. Steve didn't like it. Then he would get it changed one way or another. Vince trusted Steve's gut. Vince trusted me. I produced a lot of that stuff with Steve and we liked going live. We hated pre-taping things. Vince got to the point, God damn it. You got to pre-tape shit, Bruce. So we would go in and, uh, kind of, as we would say, fiddle fuck around till the point that you had to do it live because we didn't get it done in pre-tapes. And I dare say it was some of the best stuff because it was off the cuff. It was not verbatim script and it was Steve being Steve and just guys having the opportunity to come out of their shell, see what's in their head. Now I knew where everything was going. We all did. Nobody did anything stupid, but Vince, if it was Steve, <laughs> yeah, damn, that's good shit. Um, if it was bad, Bruce, what the hell? How'd you fuck that up? <laughs> so, um, that that was the the dice that we rolled, man, and we did it. We did it all live. If he loved it, Steve was a genius. If he hated it, Bruce, god damn it, should have pre-taped that. It was fucked up. Oh well. It was more, it was more, uh, I love that than he hated it because it was Steve. This match in particular with Shawn Michaels and triple H is a phenomenal match. Uh, these guys had a, a, a series of really, really great matches together. And I feel like their feud during this era sort of goes, I don't know, under the radar. I don't think people talk about it as one of the really great ones, but the storyline from them being, you know, partners in the click and then DX and then this feud, really, really good stuff. what do you think of this match where they go 29 minutes on raw in an era when that didn't happen very often? Thought it was amazing to me each time that they met, first of all, they tried to do a different story and they would have different matches, but Again, from Sean's initial return in 02, he had been on the shelf for a while. So it took a little while to get the rust off. But every match got better, in my opinion. And they were some of the best matches ever. I mean, they really and truly were. They were just that good. They clicked. um, They had great chemistry and told good stories. And they do a good job here because this is right in the middle of you know, what a lot of fans really didn't enjoy triple H's reign of terror, but with these clips 
building to the main event of seeing Sean beat Hunter at SummerSlam and seeing Sean win the world title at the Royal Rumble, which was in San Antonio, where they are now. And they're in Sean's hometown, quote unquote, of San Antonio. And everybody's really excited. They did that through these series of clips. Whose influence from a television standpoint would that have been to go find these clips and tell that story throughout the show to give everybody a sort of a glimpse of who Sean is and really build hope that, Hey, this might happen. That'd be a Kevin Dunn call and probably working with Brian Gewertz from raw, who was the head writer to say, Hey, this is the story we would like to tell. How do you think we could tell it best? And then the guys at the production facility going back and telling that story coming up with this, these clips all the way through. So you understood how we started the middle. And now this hopefully would be the end tonight. Uh, coach is uh, really, really enjoying, um, sort of dumping on Jr. on this episode. And it happens so much. And so frequently that Wade Keller even wrote about it. Coach's harassing of Jim Ross throughout raw wasn't coaches doing. He was being told exactly what to say during the show by Vince McMahon through his headset. Although nobody seems to be able to pinpoint why McMahon likes to needle Ross and he knows coach gets to him quote raw is Vince's playground says one WWE insider. He cares more about having fun for himself. Even if it's at the expense of the product, does Ross blame coach though? No, says one wrestler familiar with the situation. Does Ross feel threatened by coach? Yes, somewhat, because he knows coach is more photogenic and Vince likes that. But Ross realizes coach is doing exactly what Vince is telling him to do. Chat me up. What do you remember about this coach JR thing, how Vince was intertwined in it and how Jim Ross really felt about it? Well, Vince was still does, I believe. Uh, producing all of the commentary at that time and trying to help. The whole idea behind Coach was he was trying to make Coach a despised heel and be that really nasty heel commentator. One way to do that is to go after the most beloved guy in the commentary booth, which was JR. So that was easy to do for Coach to be able to pick on JR. And I think people, you know, it always cracks me up. And I go back to the Jerry Lawler line and people say, oh, Vince just gets his jollies at raw and at the expense of the product. Vince gets his jollies, but he won't do it at the expense of the product. Um, television time is just too valuable and he's not going to do that. And people think that's what it is. If he's doing something, he's doing it for a reason. And the stuff with coach that all, every bit of that came from Vince and it came from a way to get coach over as a heel. And he wanted coach to be a character and more of a character on the show. We did the GM stuff with him and the assistant to Eric Bischoff, which coach proved to be very good at. So here was a, a, a sportscaster or whatever the hell he was in Kansas city coming into our world. And I think that coach was one of the most talented guys that we ever had in that position. But, um, that was just character development on the spot. Wade would write that a wrestler told him, quote, listen to the difference between coach on heat and coach on raw. You can see the role coach naturally plays when Vince isn't in his, in his ear on heat versus the role Vince puts him in a position to play when he's on raw. It's immature events. And none of the boys who actually pay attention to what's going on in the broadcast booth during the matches like it, but what can anyone do? Okay. So listen to that right there. So the boys don't like it. That means that the 
audience at home probably doesn't like it. So the boys are buying it. They've got heat with it because they like Jr. And that is exactly the emotion that Vince was looking for. And, and Coach wasn't produced on heat the same way. And he didn't have Jr. to play off of on heat. One wrestler told Wade, the idea that Ross is being mocked on the air for caring about wrestling, openly being a fan and calling the matches seriously is a real disgrace. It's sad that the writers have time for this so they can laugh about it during the production meeting rather than getting Ross characters and storylines over. I mean, it's not as if they're doing their jobs writing well right now. If you judge it on attendance and buy rates resulting from their writing. So chat me up here. Uh, do you believe that Jr. was ever mocked for caring about wrestling, openly being a fan or calling the matches seriously? I believe that the character Jr. without a doubt, he was by coach. And that was, and again, that just emphasized how much Jr. did care about the product. It emphasized how big of a fan that Jr. was and made you feel for Jim Ross that much more. It's called being a heel commentator. Did Jr. not the character, but the actual Jr. uh, take any of this hard? Yes, he did. He took it personal. Jim took a lot of it personal because Jim's very passionate about his work. And Jim's an emotional guy in real life. So he took, he did, he took it personal. Absolutely. He did. But even going back to wearing the cowboy hat, Jim thought they were making fun of him. Uh, It was something that Vince saw Jim in that he felt would help Jim. Now you can't pry that cowboy hat off of Jr. So all of these things are done to enhance personalities on the show. And it's not a personal thing. Oh, let's go fuck with Jr. Although that's easy to do to people who, who don't understand when you sit back, that just then explains, you know, in, in a lot of respects, the, how well it's being done. If the boys in the back are buying it and the, the people that are smart know everything that's going on, they're all buying it. They're getting pissed off. Why are they picking on old Jr.? Thank you very much. Do you think Vince enjoyed this because Jr. sold it? I don't mean that to be funny, but you've told a story here on the show before where you guys had fun hiding Jr.'s keys and what you really enjoyed the most about it was that he would quote unquote, sell it. He would acknowledge that this made him upset and he wasn't happy about it. And, uh, he, he would give you a reaction and. When, when some of these angles or storylines start and you see that maybe Jr. is quote unquote, selling it, is that almost fuel to the fire events to do more? It's fuel to the fire because it's working. And yes, and Jr. did sell things and Jr. would sell ribs and Jr. would sell a lot of the things that, that was said about him, but that just made that let you know it was working. It was working on Jr. And I think if Jr. maybe had embraced it a little more. It would have been different, but at the same time, it is character development guys. It's all it is, but yes, Jim sold and yes, to get Jim to sell sometimes even better. It does feel mean spirited. If you know that, Hey, we doubled down on it because he sold it as opposed to it was getting over, but you're not going to do it if it's not character development. All right. We'll live to talk about this one another day on the January 1st SmackDown. We see the seeds being planted that maybe Chris Benoit is going to be a top guy. 
Paul Heyman is the GM of SmackDown at the time. And he announces that Benoit is going to be the number one entrant in the Royal rumble match. And we'll talk about this later. Of course, it winds up being a really, really big deal. Um, let's just keep moving for now. Keller would report the decision has been made, but possibly could be changed for Benoit to be shifted from the SmackDown brand over to the raw brand. And the change is being made to strengthen the babyface roster on raw which is already thin and will be further weakened once Goldberg's contract expires after WrestleMania. Benoit, who handpicked Hunter, is slated to get a major push on Raw in a world title feud with Triple H, perhaps including a main event slot at WrestleMania 20. Benoit, though, won't be elevated to the top babyface spot as that is being reserved for Shawn Michaels. Consideration was given to John Cena jumping instead, but Benoit was seen as someone who could step in and immediately carry his end of standout matches with Hunter, plus help groom Randy Orton and Batista this year as they climb the roster. Benoit can have four star matches based around mat work rather than flying or high impact power moves. Something that's more appealing to Hunter at this point, who has endured a series of injuries over the past few years. The jump may be orchestrated by Benoit winning the rumble, choosing Hunter to face at WrestleMania and thus jumping to the raw brand in the process. So when you're thinking about making a shift like this, a talent from one roster to the other. And maybe the WWE has a situation on their hands right now with Becky Lynch, who wants a match with Ronda Rousey and they're on different shows. Chat me up here is the go-to to have them involved in the Royal rumble. Why is Chris Benoit the perfect opponent for Hunter and not for a SmackDown title? Talk to me about the decision to move Benoit from SmackDown to raw and how much Hunter being on raw had to do with that. Well, the big issue was babyface power and the loss of Bill Goldberg. Um, once we knew, you know, for sure Goldberg was out when his contract was up, he didn't want to stick around. It's like, okay. And we knew the, we knew the problem was going to happen because it was a short term deal with Goldberg, but there had to be there had to be somebody else to fill that spot. So the idea was either John Cena, who was really starting to get over big time here with the rap babyface rap stuff or Benoit. Those were the two. And, and Eddie Guerrero was talked about in there as well, but nobody, you know, just wasn't nah, Eddie's not, not it. Cause we're talking about this back in, let's say December ish is to when to, make all these moves. The idea was it would be Benoit. And then came the, the idea of how do you get him there? Winning the rumble. That's an easy fix. And then who does he, who does he face? Is it stronger uh, to do the one-on-one? They came up with the three way and felt that both Sean and, Triple H could really get him over if he beats both those guys in the three-way. So that, I mean, that was, that was the discussion, but we also did consider Cena and Eddie Guerrero making the jump just to, to kind of even out the baby faces and get another top, top name baby face on Monday night. Raw was anyone advocating for those guys to make the jump instead not really. I, I do know that, uh, I, like I said, I remember specifically Hunter and Sean wanting Benoit bad and feeling that, that Chris would excel there. And they thought that Cena 
was better suited on SmackDown. And again, Eddie, eh, Eddie wasn't so much in the conversation at that point. Talk to me a little bit about, and this is an interesting thing to think about, you know, if that hadn't happened and let's say Eddie Guerrero goes over, Eddie winds up in the three-way with Hunter and Sean, that would have meant Benoit angle at WrestleMania 20, right? Possibly. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about. It is. And, and, but I don't think, I don't think that they would have gone the same way. Had it been Eddie, maybe Cena, maybe. Right. But I don't think it would have gone the same way if it was Eddie. Well, it's, it's funny because if it hadn't happened and you said, maybe it's Cena angle would I mean, would that have then meant Eddie big show for the U S title? There's just lots of, you know, what ifs. And that's why I enjoy doing this show. Let's talk about the January 5th raw It's from Memphis. Uh, which Raw just was at, I think, this past week. Anyway, Bischoff introduces Teddy Long as the GM for the night, and then JR and Jerry Lawler introduce the show. Teddy comes out and talks about how all white men are racist, and Lawler takes exception to this comment, specifically regarding Memphis. Uh, and when he gets in the ring, Batista gives him a sit-out powerbomb. What do you think about them getting heat right here in Memphis with Teddy long saying all white men are racist, different time, different place. I don't think you'd do that today. No, I don't think you would either. Later in the show, Austin comes down to announce Hunter versus Michaels is going to be at the rumble and Hunter interrupts and mocks Austin's sheriff's badge. And then Austin makes the match a last man standing match. The main event of that show would see Ric Flair and Batista beat the Dudleys to retain the world tag team titles and Shawn Michaels would super kick Hunter afterwards. You know, one of the things that became apparent to me watching this back, especially when, you know, I haven't seen it in a while is that maybe Shawn Michaels would have been good to have a little four hymns because 66% of men lose their hair by age 35 and thankfully baldness can be an option. Thanks to fourhems.com, which is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. And, uh, Bruce, I know you've been using this for a while. Uh, this actually connected you with a real doctor and gave you medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss. And there are well-known generic equivalents to those name brand prescriptions that you've heard of that are going to help you keep your hair. This is not just snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. Just go to fourhems.com, answer a couple of quick questions and a doctor will review and can prescribe you. And then these products are shipped directly to your door. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward doctor's visits. And Bruce, I know you've got a special offer for our listeners right now. Absolutely. And my good friend, Bill Gray took advantage of this because if you order right now, our listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. All you got to do is go to the website for full details. Now, this would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or to a pharmacy. Just go to 4hymns.com slash WWE. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash WWE. Remember, get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today. Right now, while supplies last, 4hymns.com slash WWE. Here's something interesting I found in my research. Wade Keller wrote Vince McMahon led a meeting with wrestlers last week at the SmackDown tapings to express his wishes for them. 
He talked about the need to turn up their efforts to help business turn around, trying to make them feel that they are part of the solution to low house show attendance rather than just cogs in the machinery. Some wrestlers took the speech the wrong way, seeing it as passing blame from bad booking decisions onto the shoulders of performers. McMahon also raised some eyebrows with talk about trying to adhere to quote unquote kayfabe outside of arenas, such as not dining with someone in public who you're feuding with. And he said half of them probably didn't even know what the word kayfabe means. And the other half see him as the person who told the WWE world that it's sports entertainment. And he's been accused of seeming contradictory by saying that he said that for the right reason, meaning to avoid taxes in New Jersey. And his comments seem to extend to the leaking of information about the company to the media, either off the record or on the record during radio and print interviews. Do you remember this meeting where Vince said, Hey guys, maybe we're getting a little too inside. We need to uh, keep everybody at a distance and sort of keep everything in house a little more. And I need you to step your game up. Maybe we can sell some more tickets. If you guys care a little more. This was a raw, raw meeting. This was something to, we hadn't had a meeting with Vince in front of the boys in quite a while. So it was a, it was a raw, raw and guys, this is on you. You've got to make the difference. You've got to make a change and putting the ball in their hands, so to speak. And that's what it was meant. It was meant to be an inspirational raw, raw message and get guys to be a little bit more aware. I forget what interview or what it was really set it off, but somebody had been talking about either an angle or a storyline or something like that. In 2004, at that time, you weren't talking about that shit in mainstream media. So it was his way of expressing kayfabe. I don't know that uh, having dinner at night or being in the bar together in 2004 was as big of a deal as it was in 1985. Uh, Times change. So I, I think people, I think the talent kind of misconstrued what he was saying. Maybe his message wasn't as clear as he thought it was. I knew what the message was because we, we had gone over what the hell he was going to talk about. But uh, just, it was a rah-rah. Hey, guys, get together and let's, let's make this the best. It's your company and it's up to you to, to do it. It takes all of us. It's the... It's not all on you, but a lot of it is. You're the public billboard. When you walk out of this arena, you walk into an airport, you're the billboard for this company. Somebody who's not a part of this meeting is Kevin Nash. He actually put out a press release around this time saying that his affiliation with the WWE had come to an end. He signed a year, two years prior to this. Uh, I think we all remember we've covered that 2002. Um, he comes in for roughly $750,000 a year, but he spends most of that time on the shelf because he's injured or he's trying to recreate some of the NWO magic. None of that really worked. He did have a pay-per-view main event feud with triple H that never really caught on. And Keller would write quote, even Vince McMahon lost faith in Nash, giving him very little promo time leading into the title match. And Nash would actually say in this press release that he met with Vince and talked about the possibility of staying on with the company in a more creative role. And he didn't want to do that because he said that it would have meant working five days a week and spending too much away from his home and family. 
So he's going to look into other options with different wrestling companies and film and television around that same time. He's going to snag the punisher and he's just going to take a break for a little bit. What do you remember about, uh, Nash's contract coming to an end and what may or may not have been discussed about what else to do with him? Well, what I remember about Nash's contract coming to an end was he had been injured for quite a while. We did not get two years out of him as that was the length of his contract. We certainly hadn't gotten that out of him. So there was not a whole lot of faith in renewing it or extending it. So there was no, there was no option (laughs) at that point. Nobody went to Kevin and said, Hey, we're going to renew your contract. I think this was a way for Kevin to save face and say, I'm not going to sign another contract with him. There wasn't a contract there for him to sign. And there wasn't anything there for him. Uh, he had collected his check for two years, and and that was that. We we were moving on, and during that time, it may have been the Punisher where we had Jericho cut his hair and things like that, which I think Kevin looks a lot better with the short hair. But beside the point, uh, he was having opportunities in Hollywood. And he didn't have to go in and take bumps. He didn't have to leave his house as much. That's what he wanted to do. Good luck to you. And we wished him very well in his Hollywood adventures. What was his relationship like with Hunter here? You know, lots of people want to know, you know, they just assume because of their on screen and, and, you know, we've all heard that they're friends behind the scenes that Hunter is going to take care of his friends like Shawn Michaels or road dog. But every now and again, you see a guy like Billy Gunn or Sean Waltman or Kevin Nash who aren't really mainstays with the company and they'll come in and they'll go out for a while. What was their relationship like here? I think it was fine. I mean, I, they were friends you know, they hung out together and they were friends, but it was, I think Nash was one of the groomsmen in triple H's wedding. Um, but the bottom line is it all comes back to, it all comes back to Vince. It all comes back to business and there wasn't anything there. I don't care who you were. If there wasn't something there for him, Vince wasn't going to keep him on. The WWE has a magazine at the time called raw. It was the raw magazine. So a second magazine different from the WWE magazine. And they had a predictions column around this time. And it suggested Hulk Hogan versus Steve Austin was going to happen at WrestleMania. And it would predict that Austin would run rampant on raw and drive Bischoff crazy. So he would bring in one of his old friends from WCW. That is a WWF legend that would force Austin out of retirement. And the article says it would be the biggest matchup in wrestling history. Of course, we never see that. Was there ever even a discussion of a Hulk Hogan, Steve Austin match at WrestleMania 20? Yeah, there was discussion, but it was, again, do you do Rock Hogan or do you do Austin Hogan? We were going to plan on doing Austin Hogan at some point. Rock got the nod first. That's all it was, was timing. No, but hang on now. You couldn't have both of them. Well, but you you had neither at 20. I asked about 20 and you gave me an answer for 18. So was it ever discussed for 20? No. Okay. No, no. I'm sorry. I I misunderstood. Sorry. Uh, All good. Um, Speaking of Hulk. He's on ABC's Jimmy Kimmel live, and he's telling stories about wrestling Andre, the giant at WrestleMania three. And he's joking about how Andre could shake a wooden bench with his farts. 
and Hogan didn't plug anything during the interview, but he did quickly backtrack after he took a shot at Vince McMahon. Um, when it was mentioned a story that Vince once told him, Hogan said to move on because if Vince said it, it must not be true. And then he quickly interrupted and said, I'm just kidding. Vince is a good guy. What's the relationship like with Hogan and Vince here in 04? God, it's the same as it always is. It's a love hate relationship that it's been that way since, since I've known him in 1987, it's always been just kind of that love hate relationship and they do well together when they're on the same page and then one will get disgruntled with the other and it's a little back and forth, but that relationship hasn't changed in 30 years. Let's go to the January 12th raw Goldberg's going to pin Matt Hardy in just a couple of minutes with a spear and a jackhammer and then declare himself entered in the Royal rumble. Bischoff confronts Austin over the return of the quote unquote deactivated Goldberg. And Austin said Bischoff didn't file the right paperwork. And he said his job as sheriff is to be sure Bischoff follows the rules or kick his ass later in the show coach would stand on a chair next to Ross and Lawler and said his interview segment was next. And then Triple H and Michaels do a long promo in the ring talking about their history. And then out of nowhere, super kicked coach who we don't see again for the rest of the show. In the main event, Randy Orton beats Rob Van Dam in just under 19 minutes to retain the intercontinental title after a DDT off the top rope. This is interesting because it is very much early Randy Orton. I mean, this is 15 years ago, but he's starting to get the push. And they've been flirting with the idea of pushing Rob Van Dam up the, up the ladder. What, the, what did Vince at this point in 04 see these guys as mid card guys or the next big thing? Are they going to be his next Benoit and Andy Guerrero? Randy Orton was without a doubt, the next big thing. And Van Dam was starting to get noticed. So it was, you know, when Rob had come in, whatever, was it a year before um, not so much. And I think that was due to the constant, you must have Rob Van Dam be the champion and just beat everyone. Um, now Rob on his own merit, Vince is starting to notice, but holy shit from day one with Randy Orton, people looked at him as the future. He watching, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but watching the rumble with Randy Orton, I just was amazed at how young he was and how good he was then. And he's only gotten better. Well, we talked about Vince having a meeting for SmackDown. Well, he does one for raw as well. Um, Keller would say the two messages were number one, slow it down in the ring and cut back on needless high spots and tell a story instead. And number two, reestablish a set of rules so that breaking rules mean something. And Keller would say the speech, a rare, all wrestlers, all staffers meeting lasted about 40 minutes and included an open forum Q and a session afterwards. Overall, his speech to the raw crew was met with more praise and enthusiasm than his more threatening condescending speech the week before to the SmackDown crew was. While his SmackDown speech was laced with threats of layoffs, the raw speech was all positive. Part of the contrast in the speeches is that McMahon sees the raw crew as the more experienced group on the more established show. And they need to be talked to like an NBA coach would talk to someone in their mid twenties and mid 30 something pro athletes. 
He sees the SmackDown crew as the less experienced crew with ex- without experienced leaders at the level of Triple H or Shawn Michaels, who need to be talked to more like a college coach would talk to 18 to 22 year old amateur basketball players. What do you think about the way he describes the way you have to handle the different groups? Or is it more of a story of Vince realizing, shit, that didn't go the way I planned for SmackDown and maybe changing the approach a little bit for Raw? It's basically the same speech. <laughs> basically the same exact speech. Different audience. And different people getting back to whoever the hell they were getting back to with a different perception of it. The speeches were the same. Same message, same everything. And two different groups took it two different ways. Let me ask you this. When he talks about without experienced leaders, he he references wrestlers. If there was a difference in the speeches, how much of it is based on talking to a crew that's led by Paul Heyman and Vince, just having a certain opinion about him one way or another? Well, I don't know that the crew was led by Paul Heyman on, on the, uh, SmackDown side, you had Undertaker and uh, Good God. I didn't yeah. mean. I didn't mean in ring. I just mean if this is their supposed creative influencer behind the scenes, because you've told us before that he was the head writer for SmackDown and Brian was more for Raw. But if Brian was perceived as more of a um, McMahon disciple, whereas Heyman was more contrarian, would that affect the way the speeches were handled, or no? It may have affected the way the speeches were interpreted. Okay. But again, the speeches were the same. That's what I'm trying to explain. The speech, there weren't two different speeches. He gave the exact same message to the raw crew. Let me, it was the raw crew interpreted it and they perceived it differently than the SmackDown crew did. All right, Bruce, let's take a time out here to tell everybody about the first time ever that professional wrestling is coming to host the site of the NFL's biggest game of the year. As McElloon Productions presents not one, but two shows in Atlanta on Thursday, January 31st and Friday, February 1st. January 31st is the ultimate bar brawl at Wild Pitch Underground in downtown Atlanta as filthy Tom Lawler takes on Ken Shamrock in a no rules, no ring match. The next night, it's come hell or high water, headlined by SCU members Frankie Kazarian and Christopher Daniels. They're going up against the Lucha Brothers, Pentagon Jr. and Ray Phoenix. Also, all ego Ethan Page goes one-on-one with Ricky Starks. And in action will be Mil Martirez, Joey Ryan, Matt Cross, Glacier, and for the first time ever in over 20 years, the Yeti. That's right, the Yeti. Tickets are on sale now at Eventbrite. So just search for the Ultimate Bar Brawl or come hell or high water with VIP packages starting at just $100. Can't make it to Atlanta for both shows? Well, no problem, man. They're going to be live streamed on Fight TV for just $9.99. January 31st, man. No rules, no ring. It's the ultimate bar brawl. Come hell or high water the next day, pro wrestling is going to infiltrate the NFL's biggest event, and you don't want to miss it on Fight TV or in person. Just check out Eventbrite or be sure to catch it live on Fight. Let me ask you about the open Q&A, because I feel like this would be something where events would probably sincerely say if anyone has any questions by all means ask but i feel like a lot of people are probably looking around like nobody better raise their fucking hand and then if someone does ask a question maybe some of the more senior folks are like look at this fucking asshole asking questions events does that dynamic exist yes definitely and here's why 
a lot of times I think that people, when they get to the point of anybody have any questions, guys are like, let's just get the fuck out of here. Absolutely. Yeah. God damn it. We get it. Okay. We're going to, you know, we're going to slow down. We're going to be better. Rah, rah, hip, hip, hooray. God, don't ask any questions. And then somebody asks a question and that opens up another fucking can of worms. And then somebody else will make another comment. That'll, it's just like, shut up and let's go right or wrong. That's the sentiment. Who, who are some folks who would raise their hand and ask questions? Usually the younger talent. Uh, I don't know anybody specifically by name, but it was usually, it was usually some of the younger talent that just, uh, I got a question, sir. When are we going to get our pay for, uh, I worked in, uh, Nova Scotia and I got paid for the and questions like that. That Wouldn't Vince be, doesn't have the answer to off the top of his head anyway. Exactly. <laughs> or just some off the wall. Um, nitpicky shit that may only pertain to that one person. So it, it, it was, it was always funny to see who would ask the questions and what questions we would get, because most of the time the sentiment was, let's go, let's get out of here next. You're going to love this when, you know, we're talking about slow down, tell a story. Don't take all these crazy risks. Wade Keller wrote some wrestlers though. See, this philosophy is nothing more than an attempt by triple H to slow everybody down to the level. He is physically capable of due to injuries. He can't keep up with a faster pace, more athletic style. Hunter is as influential as anyone in WWE other than McMahon. And the last thing he wants to be is seen as obsolete in comparison to his colleagues pushing to get the top spot. He now occupies. There was also frustration with wrestlers who agree with the work rate style McMahon endorsed, but see it as unrealistic since most TV matches last under five minutes, asking wrestlers to work a five minute match in the same style as a 30 minute Hunter Sean match is seen as career killing your thoughts. Well, it's silly to even put triple H in that context there, especially at that time. But no, that is something that Vince has always preached as far as slowing down and telling stories. And that comes from Pat Patterson and it comes from the agents that come from another time. However, it's a double-edged sword. When you talk about having, as you just said, having a five minute match on television, when you have any in a, you want to tell me a story, you want to slow down. I haven't even set the heat at five minutes. So you have to condense a 30 minute match into a five minute match because that's the only allocation window allocation you have on television and it's tough to do. And it just left people more confused than anything. And what he was saying is just a lot of the craziness limit it. Let's try and tell a story here. Don't go out 900 miles an hour and just King Cancun and, move on to the next thing and not sell anything. If you're going to do something big and a crazy, crazy spot that looks like it should kill both guys, sell it, take your time, make it mean something versus do this crazy spot and then get right up 10 seconds later and like nothing ever happened and move on to the next spot. That's what he's trying to say, but it, it's contradictory no matter how you look at it, because you're telling guys slow down. Oh, Hey, how long do I have for my match tonight? You got four minutes. 
okay. <laughs> it's it's tough to do. Well, of all the people that I thought you might pop up with of, Hey, who raised their hand and asked a question? I never would have guessed that you would have said Trish Stratus, but she was indeed one of them. Keller would write during the open forum after McMahon's speech, Trish Stratus suggested that TV shows build more towards house show matches. She pointed out that only two matches on the previous weekend's raw house shows had any television storylines behind them, the women's match and Stevie Richards versus test on the opener. Otherwise, every match seemed like it had been drawn out of a hat. McMahon, who said he welcomed feedback from wrestlers, then belittled Trish with his response, patronizing, telling her and the rest of the crew that they needed to concentrate on TV numbers first, then house shows could come later. There was even a post-meeting mocking of Trish for speaking out of school because she doesn't have enough experience or knowledge to speak knowledgeably about the business. Others wrote that off as blatant sexism by male management crew used to reassuring themselves that women are there to be quiet and look pretty. And Keller would also wrote that one person defended how Vince handled Trish at the raw meeting when he shot down her suggestion because quote, unfortunately, Trish came off as extremely stupid with her comments in the meeting. Several people mentioned later in the day that she thinks she knows what she's talking about, but she actually doesn't. What do you remember about Trish speaking up and potentially being belittled your feedback? You were there. Well, I don't, I don't think that she was belittled. I think that it was just kind of put off as here you go, Trish. What we're doing on television is to build television ratings and pay-per-view buys. The house shows are a byproduct of everything else that we do. And the house shows may not mimic because we're trying to sell pay-per-views and television. So they may not mimic all of that on the house shows. Um, that's where it you know, gets into, that's a question that could have been asked, I think to somebody else at a different time instead of that forum, because it opens, there's an old adage, you know, uh, open your mouth and, uh, keep your wait, keep your mouth shut and let people think you're stupid versus opening your mouth and removing all doubt. This was an example of sometimes it, she could have asked that at a different time. I don't think it's a bad question. Fair question. And she just didn't understand the whole mechanics of everything else that was going on. But I don't think Vince mocked her and some of the boys probably did. And some of the agents may have as well, but you're going to, you're going to put it out there for questions. You're going to get some questions. You're going to get some crazy questions. Sometimes I just don't know that that was the right question for that forum. Another wrestler would say the meetings are good. They make us feel like we're more part of a team It makes you realize what's right and what's wrong, or at least management is looking for you to be doing in the past. We didn't really know what Vince was thinking. Now, at least we do. And when he tells us the meetings are equal by that, I mean, it's not a beatdown session. It's 50% good and 50% bad. Hey, rip us apart. Let us know how to get better. We're all getting more thick skinned. When he says, this is your chance to ante up. There are these spots that if you want them and will work for them, I thought it was a nice message. Everyone else seems to think so too. And another wrestler told Wade, it was a good speech. What he said made sense. So by and large, it's received pretty well. You were there. Did you think there was any sort of negativity in these or was it just typical Vince? I thought it was typical Vince and it was Vince opening up what I think always helps is when Vince would address the troops. 
because now you're hearing it directly from him. You're not hearing it from me. You're not hearing it from Johnny. You're not hearing it from Jr. You're not hearing it from Paul or Michael or anybody else. You're hearing it directly from Vince with Vince's passion and Vince's vision. So when you do that, you the boys feel better. It's like, hey, he took time to tell me. So that that did make him feel better. And, and to me, it was just Vince. And if he had time to do that more often, I think it would be healthier. One of the things that was written that I found interesting is one of the wrestlers who didn't enjoy the meetings told Wade he's not performing on TV anymore and he wants an audience. So therefore the wrestlers are his audience. Now I think that's way, way out of place. Does that sound like sour grapes to you? Yes. That's silly. Let's talk a little bit about, um, Brian spanky Kendrick. Wade would report that he wants out of WWE. He's not happy with his pay and he's also not happy with his spot. So he wants to be a free agent again and WWE grants him his wish without any hard feelings on either side. And he's excited about being a wrestler and having a chance to practice his craft. And he thinks he'll do better in Japan on the United States indie scene and maybe even NWA TNA. He at the time was earning an estimated $75,000 downside, but then you have to take your travel expenses out of that. So he thinks he'll actually do better without being in the WWE. He's had an on again, off again, you know, hokey pokey type relationship with WWE over the years. Why wasn't he doing better here in early Oh four? I just think he'd had his time. There wasn't a whole lot to do with him and he was unhappy. So let him go. Uh, he was also one of those spanky was one of the original of the Shawn Michaels students that came over along with Daniel Bryan and uh, Lance Cade. So he had, he had done his time. He'd been there a long time. He want, he wanted to go out and see what was out there. And sometimes the best thing to do is to let people go, let them go and go find out what's on the other side. Uh, there are no hard feelings at all, but there was just not, we didn't have anything for him. There wasn't a whole lot more that we could do with Spanky at that point. Uh, who did he quit to? Or how did the conversation go? He meets with JR. He meets with you. He meets with Vince. I think originally he came, I think originally he came to me and then I sent him to Johnny. I got you. So when he comes to you, oh, how's the, what's the tone and tenor of the meeting? How does he approach it? Well, first he's asking about it. You know, what are the plans for me? And do you guys have anything for me? I, I don't feel like I'm being utilized. And he, he expressed his frustrations to me first. And I understood his frustration was he's coming to work. He's doing everything he's asked to do, but he's not getting television time. There's not a lot here for him. He's not making all of the house shows. Um, he would like to move on. And I understood that because when I looked at him, I said, Hey, I don't see that changing in the very near future. So, um, if you'd like your release, go talk to Johnny and, and let's work it out because having you here and you're unhappy. And if you have an opportunity on the outside, it's to make sure you have an opportunity somewhere to go and something to do. Um, and then ask for your release. It, it was a very cordial meeting. I've, I've always, uh, 
I got a lot of respect for, for Brian, um, because he's, he's a small guy that's made it in a big man's business and he's a tremendous trainer as well, but, um, just wasn't right for him at the time. Talk to me about Vince's attitude towards why some guys get polite releases and other guys, it becomes a big battle, you know, because we've seen like Neville wasn't able to just be unhappy and leave and go work somewhere else right away. Spanky on the other hand could rumor and innuendo is this last week, a handful of wrestlers wanted out of their deals and we don't know where that's going to wind up yet. I'm sure, you know, it'll all come out eventually. But what, is there any rhyme or reason as to why Vince will grant some releases and won't others? Sometimes it's just the relationship with Vince and how you present yourself and how you deal with things all along the road. If you always were there doing your job, never any problem, anything like that, and you are nice about asking, and he'll do it. Sometimes if he thinks that he has something for you that's going to be big or something that he feels is going to be right for you. He'll ask you to hang on and let's, let's try something else. The best, I mean, and as crazy as it is, sometimes it depends on the mood and it just depends on when you ask and who you ask. What about edge here? Let's talk about edge. He's, uh, obviously going to be coming off an injury and, um, the rumor mill is that he would be ready to go for WrestleMania, but that it might be tough to actually get him into a match by then. So they're going to wait and bring him back after WrestleMania with a big push. When a guy hears that he's going to be brought back after WrestleMania, how much financial impact could that have for him? I mean, I know that we don't really talk about that a lot. We talk about creative, but when a guy's going to miss a WrestleMania pay-per-view payday, that could be a year changing event. Could it not? Not really. I'd rather come back with a story than come back and be rushed into something that may or may not work. I mean, you're still going to get a payday for WrestleMania regardless. If you don't have to work it and you've got something big on the other side, I'd have no problem sitting out. What do you it's mean? An investment. What do you mean? You're going to get a pay-per-view payday. You're still going to get a payday. Guys are still going to get a payday because it's WrestleMania at that time. Guys were getting paydays. And coming back from an injury and things like that, they were always taken care of. Wouldn't be as big as if he was in the main event at WrestleMania, don't get me wrong. But if I knew that I had something big on the other side that was going to make up for it, fuck yeah. Why get lost in the shuffle coming back when you can make an impact on the other side? Well, it just feels like, you know, you go back and you hear interviews from guys like Kevin Nash, and obviously it's a handful of years prior to this, but he would say, man, you didn't know what kind of year you were going to have until you got your WrestleMania check. Cause it could be that big. And you're saying that's not the case by 04. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, let's talk about court. Why not? Uh, WWE announced in mid January that a federal court of Canada issued a injunction that will prohibit bars in Canada from illegally showing WWE pay-per-view events. Apparently WWE found 37 bars, which owed them fines in excess of $1 million for showing these pay-per-views illegally. And my understanding about this model is if you were a commercial establishment, 
you could buy the pay-per-view and you could show it, but it had to go through a commercial department. It couldn't just, you couldn't just pay the twenty nine ninety nine and then show it at your local Hooters. You had to make a much more significant investment. A lot of times that could be more than a thousand dollars for the show. How do you guys find out about this? Who pursues it? And how serious did you take it at the time? Took it very seriously, and it was something that was not only a problem in Canada, it was a problem all over the place where bars would advertise, hey, come watch WrestleMania or whatever event it is, and then charge a cover charge to come in to watch the event. They would collect the cover charge. We'd never see any of that money except for whatever they paid the $39. They would have 500 people come in their bar, watch the event. Well, it's $15,000 we're missing out on. So the, the idea was, was that they were depending upon their occupancy uh, is how they were charged, how much it would cost them to play the pay-per-view in their establishment. So if you had a, if you had a spot that only held 50 people, you would pay less than a guy that has a bar that holds two or 300 people. So it was a sliding scale as far as how much you had to pay for that stuff. But, uh, no, we had people all over, uh, God, all over the world just trying to monitor it. And it's a big world. But when we'd find people that were doing it, you'd go after them and try and set an example and set a precedent. On the January 15th SmackDown, Paul Heyman says he's setting up matches to give wrestlers a chance to enter the rumble. Eventually we get John Cena versus Rhino set up. And Heyman is saying that Cena is poisoning the youth of America with these lewd raps. So if Cena loses, he's getting his mouth washed out with soap. Your main event afterwards, of course, we see John Cena beat Rhino. Heyman tries to escape getting soap in his mouth, but Benoit locks in the crossface and Cena shoves soap in his mouth. Pretty fun little bit here. We also see Kurt Angle approach Eddie backstage. And Eddie says he couldn't tear apart Chavo in revenge because it would tear him apart inside. And he cried. And then Angle said Chavo Sr. would be there later. And eventually, Chavo Sr. would apologize to Eddie for his son Chavo not being there. And when Junior comes out, Eddie turns on him and Chavo Sr. attacks him. And Angle then saves Eddie from a two on one attack. So we're laying some ground here. We're getting there. Um, the mouth out with soap bit, though, on this show. Whose idea was that? This was uh super old school. That was actually Vince's idea. Just trying to uh clean Paul up a little bit. Maybe it'll freshen his breath. But yeah, that was old school Vince idea. We we were talking about what kind of punishments did you have as a kid? You ever get your mouth washed out with soap? I never did. But Paul got his mouth washed out with soap by God. That was a Vince McMahon idea. January 19th raw. It's the go home raw for the Royal rumble coach is going to address the locker room of wrestlers saying Eric Bischoff, put him in charge for tonight. And he's going to book everybody in qualifying matches. And, um, there's going to be a mini battle Royal later on to earn the number 30 spot. Steve Austin, who hadn't been mentioned much at all, uh, runs down Garrison Cade and Mark Jindrak backstage with his ATV or nearly does. And then he rides to the ring and calls out Foley to show up at the rumble and, uh, says that, you know, Orton has been taunting and making fun of Mick for weeks prior. You got to show up at the rumble. And then Christian shows Trish pictures of Jericho partying with other women on their night out in New York. 
which was his way of turning Trish against Jericho. And Trish is upset, which reveals that she really has feelings for Jericho. And then the actual spot, the rumble to earn the number 30 spot in the rumble Goldberg is your winner. He outlasts Randy Orton, RVD, Booker T Jericho and Mark Henry. If you know that Goldberg's wrapping up at WrestleMania, why let him win the spot for number 30? Why not give that to somebody else? God capitalize on it wherever you can. We still, that was a big draw for the Royal rumble. You're going to try and capitalize and get as much as you possibly can out of him. Wasn't like he was winning the rumble just was a good spot. Keller would write this at the end of January. Vince McMahon let wrestlers know at last week's pre-raw and pre-smackdown meetings that he's not happening with, with all the company leaks. The main concern he expressed was reporting of so many details of their meetings the week before in the wrestling media, including the torch. He gave impassioned speech about the importance of solidarity and working as a team and keeping details from behind the scenes from getting out to the media. He said he would be scouring the internet and newsletter reports, looking for any clues about who was looking, leaking the info. One wrestler said he especially agrees with McMahon's points about not wanting future storylines revealed. And Brock Lesnar was especially vocal about storyline leaks, citing a radio show interviewer who recently asked him about a future match that hadn't even been announced yet, which is Goldberg at WrestleMania 20. And he made a comment about personally enforcing the policy. And said he didn't want to see anyone reading the newsletters or websites when he's around. And one wrestler tells the torch that he doesn't like to see the storylines get out, but it's not fair to blame the wrestlers for that. We're the last to know. He says the storyline links have been coming from somewhere else. Most of us don't even know what we're doing in next week's TV until we show up much less a pay-per-view three or four months down the line. So, uh, let's just call it like it is. Why didn't Vince just say, Paul, quit calling the torch? (laughs) I think there were, I think there were probably several leaks. And I think that whether it was whoever the hell it was, I think sometimes guys saying they didn't know what they were doing that week. You know, there, there were guys that knew what the hell was going on. And it just, man, it's that that old feeling of wanting people to think that you're in the know and how smart you are, I guess with everything else. It's, it's just, uh, astonishing to me. I've never understood it. I don't know that I ever will understand it. I don't care, but it was still that time kind of viewed is bad for the business. Hey, Bruce, you ever wonder how your buddy got those exclusive wrestling superstars, action figures, Finn Balor, or even that Ric Flair autographed eight by 10 photo you can't find in stores. Well, chances are those came from pro wrestling loot pro wrestling's most unique and fan friendly monthly subscription box. You see pro wrestling loot customizes five to seven item mystery boxes for wrestling fans that include exclusive t-shirts, action figures, collectibles, trading cards, pins, autographs, and more that you can't find anywhere else today for all our something to wrestle listeners. We have a deal for you, man. Just head over to prowrestlingloot.com and enter the promo code wrestle and check out to save 20% off your first box with pro wrestling loot with over 20,000 followers online and a presence at some of the biggest conventions in the United States, including WrestleCon and Starcast. pro wrestling loot. Isn't just a business. 
with ties to indie promotions, mainstream, Lucha Libre, American, and European pro wrestling. Pro Wrestling Loot is always sending out the most unique items with you in mind for more than the last five years. Sign up today at ProWrestlingLoot.com for just $24.99 to start receiving your monthly Pro Wrestling Loot box. Plus, for a limited time, enter that code WRESTLE and receive 20% off your first box. Pro Wrestling Loot for the fan in all of us. That's ProWrestlingLoot.com. And don't forget that promo code WRESTLE. Now, things getting out and, and different shit, to me, I just look at it as you're, you're spoiling something. I don't want to know. I have you and I, our, our friend Dan Soder with Billions. I, w- I refuse, I will not ask Dan Soder what the finish to any one show on Billions is, ever. I want to watch it. I want to watch it. I want to experience it. And that's what I felt that a lot of these sheets did. They spoiled it for people and they were spoilers. I'm just not a fan of that. And so, you know, I guess that's what he's trying to say. Yeah. But, you but, know, I go, I go back, Conrad, and, and we've talked about it here on this show, but in 1988, the main event with Andre and Hulk and the twin referees, I didn't know that finish. And I was working gorilla. Because I wanted to watch it as a fan. And Vince felt, he goes, well, you don't need to know it for what you're doing. Do you want to know it? And I said, no, I don't. I just want to watch it. Because I knew it was going to be a major deal with Andre beating Hulk. Um, but I, that's, I guess that's the part of me that I, I don't. I, I kid my kids all the time about uh, Survivor and big brother. And I tell them, Oh, I know who's getting eliminated. I know this. I know that I don't, I'm watching it with them. Just like them not knowing, I pretend I do, but I, I don't, I don't read the, the spoilers. Talk to me a little bit about, um, what you did with these leaks. Like obviously Vince says, I'm going to scour the internet and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's clearly looking for clues or having someone do it for him. Like who could it be? What are you doing for that? I mean, how, how do you handle that process? Howard Finkel would summarize everything for us. Howard would go through and and Howard would read everything on the internet and all the dirt sheets. And then he would summarize anything that had to do with our business is as far as, and a lot of times the beauty of it was, was Howard didn't know. So Howard would ask questions and is this true? Is this not true? Howard wanted to know. Um, but it was, that was just his nature. Howard loved to have information. So, we would go through that and go, God damn, how did this get out? Or who knew about this? Then you kind of go back and try and piece it together and figure it out. But there were even people in the business side of things that had nothing to do with creative or anything else. A lot of times some of the so-called journalists would go to business associates and say, Hey, who's, who's in the game or what action figure are you making? And if it was a strange one, oh, so-and-so is due to get a big push coming up because there's an action figure being named or being made of them. And that just wasn't true. But they would have to assume and they would have to try and uh, read the tea leaves. So some of them were business leaks that people would let out and some of it was just guessing. But uh, And I'm sure some of it was the talent. 
picking up the phone and saying, Hey, did you hear this? And they were assuming a lot of times. Let's talk about the Royal rumble, man. We've, uh, we've built it up enough here. Your first match, Ric Flair and Batista are going to beat Devon and Bubba Ray five minutes and 29 seconds on a pay-per-view. So evolution retains here. And Batista actually has the house mic with him as he walks to the ring. And he's saying the Dudleys are the biggest loser since the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, we're in Philadelphia. That's some, uh, old school cheap heat there. Uh, it only gets one star in the torch. Keller would say when it appeared, the Dudleys were on the verge of victory coach, then got up and went to ringside to distract the Dudleys. They yanked him into the ring and ripped off his shirt. The Dudleys signaled for Devon's headbutt off the top rope, but Flair threw Devon out of the way. Devon then threw at Flair with a clothesline, barely grazing his head. And Batista slammed Devon through the table for the win. Not the best match, not the worst match. It was just sort of there for me. And I like all four performers. What'd you think? Well, first of all, I'll, just, I'll go back to the very, very beginning with the open and being in Philadelphia. I thought the open was fucking great. And I had to chuckle because you see Jr. and King up on a platform and they throw down to Michael Cole and Taz at ringside. Jr. hated being on the platform. Jr. loved to call from ringside. So he would always be like, oh, why can't raw team be at ringside? It's like, why does it matter? They're different looks. We have this look for all. We have that look for SmackDown. Um, but I, again, it was, it was a good story. I, it was interesting to me, Rick flair coming out for an entrance without a robe on weird, and right? It was weird. It was just, it was bizarro land, but then the jump start, I understood it, but at the same time, it didn't feel like Rick flair to me and watching the match. The match was so, so, I mean, you, there's only so much shit you can do in a tables match. And I, I just remember at that time, the Dudleys being almost in awe of working with Ric Flair, young guys, you know, you get, get in the ring with a guy like Ric Flair. It's like, Oh my God, you know, it's a Holy grail. And I, that's where the Dudleys were at this point. And I have to say, I'm, I'm looking at it and I went back, obviously I know it's, Royal Rumble 2004, but I had to check that because looking at Rick in 2004, good God, he looked good. I mean, he really looked, he looked better in 2004 than he did just five years before that. He was in shape, tan, the hair looked good. Everything looked good. And he was really on his game. And I was just, I, I just wrote that down. I was like, 2004, Rick looked good. And, um, yeah, but the match was, yeah, it was so, so you had a really green Batista in there. And I think the Dudleys were just happy to be in the ring with Ric Flair. Next up, we got Josh Matthews interviewing John Cena, Rob Van Dam interrupts him right away and says he's going to win the rumble. And Cena tells RVD that he can suck his candy cane. And he closes the interview with word mother fricking life. Word. I thought, again, listening to this, first of all, Josh Matthews hair folks, if you do anything, go back and just check it out for Josh Matthews hair. Um, Josh during this time, I thought Josh was a hell of a backstage guy and a pretty good play by play guy as well. Uh, wasn't going to make it size wise in the ring, but I enjoyed his work during that time. And to me, 
for John Cena, this was John Cena's coming out party. And this was where Cena was really coming into his own on the babyface side of the rap stuff. He wrote all of his stuff himself and it was entertaining as hell. So it was, it was fun to go back and hear that because you, you forget about it now with the way that he does his promos and he was so friggin' entertaining. It was good shit. You know, those two lines, uh, suck as candy cane and word mother freaking life. If Cornette was an agent there, how would he have told Cena to say that? Suck my motherfucking goddamn double cheese dick, motherfucker. Word your fucking life, ass wife. Foul mouth Mickey. Motherfucker. Thank you. Uh, Ross reminds viewers that Austin has ordered Foley to be at the event. And Lawler says he's given up on Foley and called him a coward. Uh, that leads to Ray Mysterio and Jamie Noble. They're wrestling here for the cruiserweight title. They only get three minutes and six seconds. They got three quarters of a star here in the torch. Um, Nydia is interfering and I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, it was a good little match. I mean, again, it was short, but they told a nice story in the match. It was not meant to be long. It's, it's funny. Well, this match was too short. That match was too long. Good God. Um, it's all arbitrary. I thought that they told a good story. They were out there to get over the Nydia being blind or is she blind storyline with Jamie and Nydia get Ray over, have a nice spot on the show. That's all it was intended to do. And I thought that they served that purpose well. So not every match can have every match be 30, 40 minutes. It's just not realistic. Eddie Guerrero is going to be out next and he's wrestling Chavo Guerrero for eight minutes and two seconds. Meltzer, or I'm sorry, Keller would say another letdown due to how short it was. The action started slowly as if they were pacing for 15 or 20 minutes and never had a chance to shift into high gear for a sustained period of time. Ultimately though, he liked it enough to give it two and a quarter stars, but he did say for a climax of a feud on pay-per-view with so much TV time invested in it, it felt like a real letdown. What'd you think? Watching, uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And guys, I'm partial to Eddie Guerrero. I love, I love Eddie. Uh, I love Chavo senior Chavo junior. I mean, we're family, so I'm prejudiced. I'm going to say that up front. However, if you go back and you don't love this match and this story, there's something wrong with you because the, the buildup to it was emotional, man. And if you have ever had discourse with someone in your family, you felt this, you felt it. And the buildup for the match God, I miss Eddie Guerrero. I'm sitting there with tears in my eyes, texting Chavito, telling him how great this was. And and Chavo and I are going back and forth on text while he's on the glow set, uh, just talking about this match. It was just that good. But what was good about it was the storytelling and the fact that Eddie didn't want to beat up his nephew. He didn't want to have to do it. But then Chavo pushed him so far that he did it. And then his brother Chavo classic out there. Um, My favorite spot in the match at the end is when Eddie ties Chavo classic to the rope with his tie. (laughs) And Chavo classic is flaking on the, like he can't just reach up and untie the tie himself. 
He's like, he can't move is that he's beating the shit out of uh, Chavito. But to me, this was a classic, classic match and a great story. And unfortunately, it was rushed. And it was rushed because we knew what we had to do at the next pay-per-view. And we needed to move Eddie on. So we had to finish this up so that we could get Eddie to Brock. And I would have loved to, I would have loved to have gotten three, four more matches out of it. We could have, but it was, it was rushed for that. So if you felt it was rushed, you're right. It was. Next up, Josh Matthews is going to interview Chris Benoit, Ric Flair, Batista, and Randy Orton are all going to be interrupting in this promo. Flair gets in Benoit's face about never winning the big one. And then he shook up a bottle of champagne and sprayed it in his own face and let out a woo. So we're planting the seeds here for Benoit. <laughs> and, and I love Rick because when the champagne explodes in his face, he can't see now. And the champagne's burning his eyes. <laughs> He's trying to get in Benoit's face. And just for me, that's a funny spot because Rick, I knew I was there. So it was good shit. He couldn't see a damn thing because the champagne's burning the hell out of him. Next up is an interesting match we haven't talked about just yet. Brock Lesnar and Bob Holly. Uh, Brock is defending the WWE heavyweight title here. And you may remember the story. There was a botched power bomb once upon a time on SmackDown that put a hurting on Bob Holly. So this is the rematch. And it's an interesting match. Star and a half. Uh, Keller would say it had a nice finishing sequence and the first half or first third of a really good match. Of course, we know what the finish is. Brock's going to get an F five and a clean win, but it was a fun match for what it was. I enjoyed it more than I think I probably imagined I would. What'd you think? I thought it was ugly and brutal. It was, it was believable as hell. It wasn't like this great match, but it wasn't a bad match and it, it just told that story of two guys going out there and beating the shit out of each other. It, it was different. It, it wasn't, it was unlike anything else on the card, but I thought it told a, a pretty good story from that standpoint. And you got somebody new in the mix and Bob Holly with Brock, but I don't think that anybody left that night going that match wasn't real because it was real as shit. And they, you felt it with those two guys in there, the way that they worked the match stiff and brutal. Next up, really, uh, one of the more important matches on the entire show, triple H and Shawn Michaels. Of course, the world heavyweight title is on the line. Triple H is going to win this last man standing match, or I guess they go to a no contest. So he retains, uh, 23 minutes and five seconds. They have a ton of time and they tell a lot of story. Uh, Michaels locks on a figure four early in the match and Hunter's screaming in pain. Obviously these guys are big flare marks. So, uh, they do that, but they also, uh, try to use the Spanish announce table and they're teasing the pedigree throughout the entire thing. Uh, there is a, a chair shot. There's blood. And at one point, Shawn Michaels does a nip up late in the match and the crowd goes wild for it. And Jr. has the perfect line. Are we seeing a miracle here? Because they're certainly trying to build this as Sean is, you know, the, the, the KG veteran who just needs one more shot at the world title. 
but triple H has been so dominant. He can't possibly overcome all of this. Uh, Sean hits Hunter with a super kick out of nowhere for a huge crowd pop again. Um, eventually there's a 10 count. Both men fail to answer. So the crowd is not happy with that. Hunter stretchered out. Michaels is next, but refuses the stretcher and walks out with help from the officials to the back. It's a nice dramatic end, but it does feel like a non-finish. Three stars is what Wade gave it. I can't help but think if there was a clear-cut winner, maybe he would have rated it higher. What did you think? You hadn't watched it in a long time till today. Absolutely loved it. Uh, great psychology. If you want to go back and watch a match that just tells a beautiful story of the quote underdog Shawn Michaels with his bad back, the way Jr. tells the story, constantly going back and referring to Shawn Michaels' back surgery and that he's not the Shawn Michaels of old. And just like you said, are we seeing a miracle here? The way that Hunter sold Shawn, the way that Shawn was able to bring that audience in and he had him in the palm of his hand throughout the whole thing. It was bloody. <laughs> Fuck, it was bloody. But it it told a hell of a story. The finish, I remember talking about the finish early, and everybody said, we all knew, they said, they're going to shit all over the finish. We knew it going in, especially in Philadelphia. They're going to shit all over it. And they did. The idea behind it was you had the double pin. Now you've got the last man standing. Neither guy can get up. Sean eventually walks out. So you know that, by God, if there was just one more shot, Sean, Sean could have outlasted him. But all that was done. If, if we had put this on last, then I would be, no, you can't do that finish. Because it would have been horrible to have people go home with that finish. But where it was, what it was, it accomplished everything to a T. And I'm not uh, the normally I would say, God damn, you can't do that finish. It sucks. It's the last man standing match. Somebody has to win. That's the point. On this one, I thought expertly done. And it was the right thing to do getting to where we wanted to go at WrestleMania. Hey man, did you overdo your holiday spending? Maybe you made a new year's resolution to get out of debt or save money. Well, we can help you make that happen right now at SaveWithBruce.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket, but I'm talking to you. If you're in a 30 year loan, if you've got a second mortgage, if you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It really is a matter of how much. And best of all, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. So why wouldn't you? It's a couple of quick clicks right now. And we've got a few different money saving ideas. First of all, how about paying your house off faster? And what if we could help you do it with cheaper monthly payments and oh yeah, get you a better interest rate. Did you know all the interest you pay on your credit card debt is not tax deductible, but the interest you pay on your mortgage is listen, if you owe, you owe, why wouldn't you find this fastest, smartest, easiest, cheapest way to pay it back? If you could get a better rate and a tax deductible interest rate at that, why wouldn't you do it? 
Go on over to SaveWithBruce.com right now. Let us run a couple of quick numbers for you and find out how much money you can save for free. I'm telling you, you'll be glad you did. We routinely help our listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And you even get to skip your next two house payments. That's right. No payments in February or March. You're done until April 1st. It's SaveWithBruce.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Let me ask you, is this a triple threat match at WrestleMania with Benoit, Shawn Michaels, and Hunter? Because perhaps Vince doesn't think that Benoit is a big enough star for a singles match. I think that that might've played a little bit into it. I really do. But I also think that all those guys felt that Benoit being rubbed up with both Hunter and Sean was even more for Chris on the backside that it did more for Chris to win over both guys. Well, that you, was, that's what we ultimately settled on. Do you think that Vince felt like Hunter versus Benoit wouldn't have been enough as a main event? I think that he probably felt, what the hell do I do with Sean? And that's probably what fed into it more than anything. And then the feeling that this will be bigger for Chris to be with both guys, but I bet it started and I don't know. Um, but I'm, I know a lot of the different things we talked about, but I'm pretty sure that Vince's things well, then what the hell do you do with Sean at WrestleMania? We have to have Sean. And Sean and anything else didn't fit, but this still fit with all the finishes that we had. And with Chris entering in here, it was a good way. It it served all masters. It would have been interesting to me to see Sean and Benoit rather than Hunter and Benoit. But I mean, either way, I'm, I'm not, I'm not upset with what we got. That's for sure. Uh, I guess we're ready, man. Is it time for us to talk about? The Royal Rumble? Holy cow, already? Yeah. We just started. Okay. We don't have to right now. I guess we could talk about Eric Bischoff coming out to the ring and saying he's the dominant GM in WWE. And he said Paul Heyman SmackDown may be the favorite here in Philadelphia because he ran some small shows in a bingo hall. But he's a more respected figure for what he's done in wrestling. Heyman comes out and he's ready to uh fire off some words, but instead he fires off some shots and attacks Bischoff, which is kind of fun. And that brings out Sheriff Austin to the ring on his ATV. Heyman and Bischoff stood up and began shouting at Austin, pointing at each other about who started it. And eventually Austin gave Bischoff a stunner. He called for beers, starts drinking, gives Heyman a stunner. Heyman's thrilled to get the approval, which of course means Heyman gets a stunner. What'd you think of this segment? It is sort of fun to know what these guys represented for wrestling. And now they're in the ring, drinking beers with stone cold and catching stunners. I thought it was great for Philadelphia and it was a nice little, let me up people get happy after the, <laughs> after the finish that they just had. So it was, it was filler. It was a nice little respite. Now get ready for the Royal rumble itself. And I always would shiver whenever Steve was on that four wheeler riding down to ringside. Cause he went so fast and he, he wouldn't hit the brakes and coming around there. And you see the guys scurrying to get the steps out of the way. Cause they knew he wasn't breaking and he was good on that thing, but it was scary every time he did it. 
let's talk about the interview that we see backstage next, because there's some really good stuff here. Terry's interviewing Goldberg and talking to him about being number 30 and Brock is going to interrupt without really saying a word. And Goldberg says that he's going to win the rumble and regain his title. And he looks over Brock's shoulder and says, ain't that right? Hardcore. And that causes Lesnar to jump and see if hardcore Holly was behind him. He wasn't. So it was a nice subtle way to sort of bring attention to the fact that Goldberg knows that hardcore Holly is still in Brock Lesnar's head. I thought that was a nice little touch. It was. And you know what? It was even nicer, which is just, I noticed it today watching it was if you look at the right side of Brock's neck and you know how you can see people sometimes when they're really pissed and the red starts coming up their neck and into their face. Yeah. You you see that with Brock in this interview and you see it start on his neck and kind of crawl up the right side of his face after Goldberg did the whole hardcore thing. Uh, Nice little storytelling here. We started it at the Survivor Series in November. Another little bit here to get us to February, to get us to Mania and say goodbye. When we started the damn thing, we didn't know we were saying goodbye to both of them. But, hey. No, I get it. Let's talk about the Royal Rumble match. We're finally here. Uh, I guess we should mention that, uh, there are a bunch of qualifying matches in order to figure out who's going to get where, um, Chris Benoit and Randy Orton are your first two out. Of course, Benoit's one, Randy Orton's two, and the match starts around nine 40 PM. So over halfway into a three hour show, and they're supposed to go with 90 second intervals, uh, between entrance. But starting the match off with Benoit and Randy Orton, are there two better wrestlers you can start this with? The idea behind it was Raw versus SmackDown. Right. And we thought we knew Benoit obviously going all the way through, but it was also an opportunity to to shine Randy up. And yeah, this, um, I was proud of this one watching it back. I really didn't remember all that much about it other than the finishes. I, I thought it was a pretty damn good rumble and starting it off this way, man, it worked. Absolutely. Number three is Mark Henry. Number four is Tajiri. Number five is Bradshaw. And he's going to nail the clothesline from hell on Orton, Henry, and Tajiri. He goes for one on Benoit, but Benoit avoids it, turns it into a crippler crossface, which was a nice deal. And then Bradshaw would lift Benoit, toss him over the top rope, but Benoit lands on the ring apron and in turn tosses out Bradshaw. So Bradshaw is the first guy out. Rhino's out next. Uh, and then eventually Tajiri is eliminated uh, when Rhino bumps into him, followed by Benoit tossing Mark Henry. Um, number seven is going to be Matt Hardy. And there's no uh, Matt fact for the Rumble here, which is a little disappointing. Uh, number eight is Scott Steiner, and he's going to come out and clothesline everybody in the ring. Uh, number nine is Matt Morgan and Jr. is putting him over as a blue chipper. Uh, number 10 is hurricane. Who's going to come right. out. Well, well, hang on, hang on. When hurricane comes out now, I'm not saying that everybody else didn't get pops. When hurricane came out here, the place went fucking nuts. And this was the first. At number 10, this was the first like big over the top 
pop that that Philly crowd gave somebody when Hurricane came out and stopped up on the top of the stage with his cape. That was pretty good shit. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, he goes to work on Matt Morgan, who's no selling all of Hurricane's punches. And then Hurricane gives him an eye poke and dives at him. Morgan caught him, tosses him over the top rope. He is the fourth person eliminated, and the crowd is booing this majorly. Um, Booker T's out next, and JR says he's one of his favorites to win. Number 12 is Kane, and uh, Ross says he has the record for the most eliminations in the match. And uh, Booker eliminates Steiner off camera as Kane is coming out, but they do eventually replay it. Undertaker's music plays, and Kane shook his head and screamed, No, no. And then Booker attacked a distracted Kane from behind and eliminated him. So Kane is out number six. Um, number 13 into the match is Spike Dudley, and he never makes it into the ring, uh, which is sort of interesting because. Uh, well, Kane just met his ass there on the, on the ramp and choke slammed him to hell. <laughs> By God, I don't give a shit who you are. You ain't getting up after that, especially on the ramp. Well, well, that's, what's fun to me is, I mean, technically he never got in the ring. So technically, technically he still, he still could win it. I'm campaigning for Spike <laughs> Dudley to be the Royal rumble 2004 winner. I mean, if WWE is not going to acknowledge that Chris Benoit won it, can we not just say fucking Spike Dudley won it instead? Cause he was not he, eliminated. He was never eliminated. I think Spike but, Dudley is the W like if they're going to put an asterisk by Benoit anyway, why not just say Spike Dudley won the damn thing? There you go. Uh, it, it is interesting too, because I I've always enjoyed, you know, what's the fastest elimination in the rumble. And I thought they'd never beat that bushwhacker one. Well, Spike Dudley beat it with 0.00. How's that? <laughs> Can't get any lower than that. Uh, so he's the seventh elimination, I guess. Rikishi comes out next. Uh, not a big pop here for Rikishi. Uh, but he does knock his body into uh, Hardy. And then gave Morgan his rumble initiation with a stink face for a small pop. Um, Rhino is eliminated here. So he's going to be number eight out of the match. Number 15 into the match. We're halfway through is Renee Dupree. is going to do that, uh, silly little dance. Uh, we also get elimination number nine when Dupree would drop kick Hardy off the ring apron. Uh, not super glamorous for an elimination for Matt Hardy there. Uh, but then Rikishi sidekicks Dupree and he's right out of here too. So he's the 10th elimination. A train comes in at number 16 and he's running full speed and going after Rikishi. Benoit's going to eliminate Morgan to be the 11th elimination. Then Orton eliminates Rikishi for number 12. Uh, and then backdrops Booker over the top rope. So Booker is number 13 out of the match. And we're down to just three dudes at this point, which is Chris Benoit, Randy Orton and a train. So the first two guys in the ring and a train, the most recent guy, uh, number 17 is Shelton Benjamin. And, um, as he's coming out, Benoit goes ahead and eliminates a train. So we're back down to our original two and Shelton Benjamin Shelton goes for a kick and Orton eliminates him. So now we're back down to the original two and this and, is pretty cool storytelling so far. And yes. And it was the idea that. It's not just two guys. It's the first two guys that started the match and now they're in the ring and they're the only two left and they're, they're down for the count, uh, double knockout. And you're feeling like, holy shit, you know? And, and at this point, 
I think a lot of people, one of these guys has to win it. One of these guys has to win it. And out of nowhere to a, just my favorite part of the, was the rumble. Ernest, the cat Miller's entrance. It is fun. Uh, he gets an introduction from Lamont. He does a dance while Benoit and Orton are attempting to regain their energy on the mat. Benoit's going to throw out Lamont as Orton eliminates the cat. Huge pop, uh, because it was a little comedy. Uh, but he's right out of there. Uh, next up, Kurt Angle is out next. And uh, then Rico is going to be at, at number 20. And, and Kurt, man, the, the audience got out of their seats on Kurt's entrance, too. That was like a holy fuck pop. Well, just because, seeing Kurt come down to the ring. Because he's a, he's a tippy-top guy. You know that. And so now you've got Randy Orton, Chris Benoit, and Kurt Angle in there. I mean, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Rico comes in and almost immediately Orton backdrops him out of there and he's gone. Then test music plays, but he doesn't walk out. So they go backstage and show test on his back in the locker room. So Austin orders a new person to head to the ring right away as number 21. And Jr. wonders who he's talking to Mick Foley's music hits and he charges the ring and goes right after a frightened Randy Orton. He does the bang, bang, and then eliminated Orton and himself with a diving clothesline over the top. So they're number 18 and number 19. That was a cool spot. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a nice way to introduce Foley and to make sure that he's getting to take advantage of a very tired, exhausted Randy Orton really well done here. Yeah, it was, it was excellent because I think by this time they, everybody had counted Mick Foley out and pretty much forgotten him. After Jr. called him a coward and said, "Well, he probably ain't gonna show up." Sassafras. Uh, I think that was Jerry Lawler, but whatever. Well, no, Jr. Uh, Jr. admitted and called him a coward uh, with Taz right before right before this match, and said that um, you know what I said. If he doesn't show up, he's a coward, and he hadn't shown up yet, so I guess he's a coward. And you forgot about it after that because you figured, well, shit, Jr.'s admitted it, then fuck, he's not coming. Nice little spot for Mick and Randy and a great way to tell that story. So they went out and busted their ass and it's getting good folks. Chat me up about uh test. I mean, I know we're going to get questions about it. Um, nothing was wrong with this. It's just storyline, right? Yeah. No reason. Somebody had to, we had to have Mick take somebody out, had to take somebody's spot. So it was test. No, no real reason. Number 22 is uh, Christian. And he's out facing the only two guys left in the match, Benoit and Kurt Angle. Uh, meanwhile, Foley is lifting up the uh, ringside stairs and mistakenly hits agent fit Finley here. And Orton then goes after Foley with a bunch of forearms. They're brawling all over the place. Eventually Mr. Sacco comes out. Nunzio walks out at number 23, but Foley turns and puts Mr. Sacco on him for a pop, which is kind of fun. And then Orton kicks Foley from behind and then retreats to the back. Um, and Taz has a great line here. He says one of his keys to victory is not entering the match. And that's what he right. recommends that Nunzio does, which is pretty funny. Uh, big show comes in at number 24. Uh, Jericho comes in at number 25. Another good size pop here. Number 26 is Charlie Haas. And Jericho and Christian work together to suplex Haas. Nunzio is still at ringside on his ass, not budging. And Jericho eliminates Christian at 42 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, so that's, uh, the elimination number 20. 
Billy Gunn runs out, gives the famous to Jericho an angle, and then pu- starts punching away. And number 28 is John Cena, who comes out with uh, great energy. And uh, you can tell that, hey, man, uh, he is a forefront to win this thing just based on the way he comes in. And the audience was going fucking banana. They were ready for him. Van Dam comes in at number 29, which I guess makes him the quote unquote second luckiest draw. Uh, he rolls into the ring and, and we're getting after it now. Now, number 30 Goldberg comes in as designated beforehand, gives a spear to show and then gun a man. We're off to the races. Uh, Goldberg shoves Haas over the top rope while Nunzio was riding his back, which is kind of fun. Uh, so, uh, Haas is the elimination number 21. Eventually Nunzio gets speared, which I can't believe is the thing. Uh, and a brutal spear. Goldberg speared him so hard that Goldberg speared his own head into the mat. Yeah. I mean, it was serious. The, <laughs> yeah. Bull in a China shop. He clotheslines gun over the top rope. So that's elimination number 22. Tosses Nunzio to the floor. That is elimination number 23. Eventually, though, Kurt Angle eliminates Goldberg, which is kind of fun. Um, well, as after Brock came in. Yes, I guess we should mention that. Yeah, so it was just set up because, you know, you had the thing at Survivor, you had the deal tonight. Now Brock comes in, gave Goldberg the F5, and Goldberg's now down out for the count, which, as anyone would do, Angle takes advantage of that and dumps Goldberg at 24. Why not? Uh, then we know what's coming next. Uh, show eliminates Cena, which is going to set up WrestleMania 20. But hang, hang on for a second. But here, here to me was another beauty of this match. You get, you get Goldberg out that a lot of people thought might win. Right. And you're down to six guys. You got the big show, John Cena, Jericho, Angle, Benoit, and RVD. Any one of those six guys, everybody in that arena could buy main eventing WrestleMania. And that, you know, it shit seven when you had Goldberg in there. But that was the idea is now it's like you cannot call it at this point. It's you think, what the fuck is going to happen? And anybody that wins is going to be acceptable. And to me, that was the beauty of a, of a great rumble. RVD goes for a monkey flip on show, but show tosses him over. So he is elimination number 26. So we're down to Jericho. Big Show, Kurt Angle, and Chris Benoit. Um, Show lifts Jericho with one arm, throws him over the top rope. That's number 27. I guess we should circle back. When Big Show threw out John Cena, Cena immediately reaches for the knee. Was that uh, a serious injury, or is he just selling? No, he tweaked his knee pretty good. You can see when he comes over, his left leg plants. And he just turns his body turned and his leg didn't. So I don't remember the extent of the injury, but it was scary that night. And he was, he was out. So that was the drizzling shits show manages to eliminate angle by flipping out of the ankle lock. And he ends up over the top rope, but on the ring apron. So Benoit goes to the top rope, comes off with a forearm to the back of his neck. And that sends him out of the ring. So Benoit still in here at the very end and. Big show is elimination number 29 and that's the finish. Uh, it goes one hour, one minute 
in 38 seconds. Keller would say really nice finish, especially after having firmly established during the match, how difficult it was for even five or six men to eliminate show. Benoit celebrated as the show ended and Ross sold it as Benoit is headed to WrestleMania. Wade loved it. He gave it four and a quarter stars. And he says that the longest stint in the rumble is 64 minutes from flair and 92 and Benoit nearly got here. Only two guys have ever started at number one and won the thing at this point. The first was Shawn Michaels in 95 and then Benoit did it here. So you tell a hell of a story with this starting at number one and winning. Uh, he has the most time in the ring by far 61 minutes, 31 seconds. Uh, there's really no close second, but Randy Orton has 33 minutes and 48 seconds. Kurt angle has 29 minutes and big show, believe it or not, has 22 minutes and 33 seconds. Uh, after last week, Bruce, I got to tell you, I'm a little disappointed. You didn't tell us how many seconds were in each interval. Yeah, uh, that's because I wasn't doing Gorilla, and I, uh, it was Jerry Briscoe at the time, so I'm pretty sure they were 90-second intervals pretty damn dead on. But, you know, you, you go back and look at the the finish of this thing, and to me, and again, it was is something, and I worked with talent on it big time, uh, but the last two eliminations with the way that Kurt Angle was eliminated by Big Show, Kurt having the ankle lock on Big Show, Big Show diving over the top rope and, and basically throwing Kurt over because Kurt wouldn't let go of the hold and Kurt getting eliminated. And I'm, we're sitting there with Benoit and said, okay, Chris, now you, you've been in this thing all night. You can't just eliminate Big Show. What do we do? And the idea from – it was actually reversed. We were trying to figure out what Chris could do. And then Chris came up with, what if I had him in a hold and he goes to dump me and I just held on? we did that with Kurt and then just reversed, reversed it where it worked for big show who had the hold put on him. Well, now this time Benoit's got another hold on big show and Benoit just slides underneath the ropes and the bottom rope and big shows momentum brings him over. And that was something that Benoit came up with, but the, the way it was done, those last few exits from the rumble, uh, great story. And, and that, Hats off there to the talent, those guys being able to pull it off and, and come up with those scenarios to make it all work. Do you ever talk to Chris, what it meant for him to win the Royal rumble? I mean, we're starting the biggest push of his career here. He was ecstatic. You know, Chris is one of those guys that he really appreciates what he had. And he, that was a big deal to him. It was a big deal to him to be considered to be the champion and, the fact that we had the confidence in him to do it. Of course, the next night on raw triple H comes out and talks about his match with Shawn Michaels at the rumble. Michaels comes out and says, they're just getting started. Austin comes out on his ATV and invites Chris Benoit to the ring as a surprise. And he said, Benoit chose to use his rumble win to face Hunter at WrestleMania 20. And of course we know Benoit is going to go on to beat both triple H and Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 20, making triple H tap out to the crippler crossface to win the world title. And after that match, we see that famous moment where he and Eddie Guerrero embrace in the middle of the ring in Madison square garden at WrestleMania 20 with all of the confetti and both of these guys now world champions, one of raw, one of SmackDown. And this is sort of how we laid the groundwork to get there. After the, uh, the night was all said and done, 
what did Vince, what did you, what did everybody think of the Royal rumble 2004? I was very happy. And I think everybody else was too. the, the only bummer on the whole night was John Cena getting hurt. But overall, I think everybody loved the rumble because the whole night there wasn't a stinker in the group. And that rumble match was one where you get lost in it. And to me, those are the best kind. I stopped taking notes and was just sitting there watching. It was a good, had a story from start to finish and you felt good at the end. Let's get to some questions. And I want to tell everybody that we've got, uh, another big show coming your way. I can't believe that this actually finally won the poll, but we brought the polls back this year and uh, let you guys put it to a vote. You wanted Royal rumble 99. We delivered, uh, this was your second place winner and we've delivered that. And next week we're talking about the master and the ruler of the world. Psycho Sid. What might we talk about next week when we have Sid as our main topic here on the podcast? Well, we're going to run through, we're going to run through the career, but I'm going to share with you some things before Sid ever even came into the WWF and some of those internal talks with Vince McMahon and different people about just which skyscraper, if you remember Sid being a skyscraper with me and Mark and also Dan Spivey in that group, but what's, what skyscraper did Vince really want and which one did he get and so on and so forth. But the early machinations, I wasn't there for when uh, Sid justice came in initially, but I definitely was there after the fact and there's some a uh, lot of good Sid stories, including him missing the press conference in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, how great would it be if next week we just didn't post a show because you went to play softball? Is it softball season? I mean, it might be if we just say it is because you missed. Could be. Let's get to some questions here. Uh, by the way, we got a new poll up for you right now. Go vote at Pritchard Show. Can't wait to see what you guys want to hear next. But here's some rapid fire questions, some Q and A's. Bruce, are you ready? Ready. Adam wants to know what was happening in 2004 that the WWE had so little confidence in the Royal Rumble winner. Yes, Benoit deserved it, but it's obvious there were concerns with its drawing power. Why else would you feel the need to add HBK to the main event of WrestleMania? It was a great attraction, and we did have confidence in him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be put in that position. Armando Morales wants to know, was there another backup plan if Chris Benoit didn't win the 04 Royal rumble? You sort of mentioned John Cena and Eddie Guerrero. How close did either one of those come to happening? Not very, because we had to get Benoit over to raw at that point. So the only way to do it was the Royal rumble. But you know, if, if it had been Cena, Cena would have made the jump to raw, but that was, those were the two main and Eddie Guerrero, um, had his match. We had to blow that off. So that kind of eliminated Eddie from being in the rumble. Some people's mind. I didn't see why he couldn't work twice, but Hey, um, so there were some different, there were some different people, but, uh, Cena and Eddie were probably the top two. Brian and Damon want to know is, has there ever been thoughts of having a mid Carter to win a surprise winner of the Royal rumble match? And the second question is who was the least over person in your opinion to win a Royal rumble match? Probably John Studd was the least over because um, he had just come back at the time. But uh, what does a mid-carter do for you? It, unless they're going to be a top guy, it, it doesn't do anything for you. 
because no one's going to want to see the mid Carter in the main event at WrestleMania. So again, you, you have to think business wise and logically that doesn't do a whole lot for you business wise. Justin wants to know, I remember the exact scenario this show started. Benoit wins, switches shows, wins the belt at mania making the rounds on the internet before the show began. Was there ever any thought to changing the story because all the details had gotten out? No, John, there was not. John wants to know, was it ever strategic to have certain wrestlers win in a city where fans would react more favorably to the victory than anywhere else? Philadelphia is a strong wrestling town that was firmly behind a Benoit win. Are things like that ever even considered? Sometimes I, I think, I think they are, but I think that there's a lot, I think there's a lot more from outside inside. That's not really ever taken into consideration. If it's a hometown thing, for example, Kurt angle in Pittsburgh winning the championship that was considered, but it was a good story too. Um, and as you see, with Roman Reigns and Philadelphia winning the Royal Rumble. Ugh. They sure as hell didn't do that for that. Nicholas wants to know if uh, Bob Holly had any ideas about Royal Rumble 2004. Well, Bob's idea was was a pretty simple one. It was, how about you give me the belt? And then what? And then I beat everybody. Oh. He also wants to know, how do you feel about the story of Benoit being number one and winning relative to how it compares to the same story of Shawn Michaels being number one and winning? Do you think it was uh, better on par or worse? I thought it was absolutely on par. I thought they were both wonderful. Kevin wants to know, was anyone for Goldberg winning the 04 Royal Rumble match to get him to stay with WWE longer? Goldberg had already made his decision that he was not going to stay past WrestleMania. So it wasn't even up for discussion. Bill wants to know, was Virgil considered to enter or win? Yeah, he was definitely number three consideration. Maybe number nine. Uh, Robert wants to know, who are the names you all discussed and wanted to appear as possibilities who fell through? I think what he's pitching here is uh, sometimes you guys would have surprise entrants like uh, Mr. Perfect popped up once at a Royal Rumble and Goldberg or Goldust popped up once as a surprise and Kevin Nash once as a surprise. Were any surprises discussed here? They were, however, this was during the time that it's funny. Vince would go through periods where God damn it. Our stars are the celebrities. We don't need celebrities for WrestleMania where we didn't have any celebrities. And then there would be times, for example, in the Royal rumble It's God damn it. Use the guys you've got. Why do you need to bring in outside people? This was one of those times where, uh, he felt you didn't need to bring in any outside people. So when I even forget who we might've considered, but he cut it off at the pass pretty quickly. Andrew wants to know at this point, did you guys know you were going with Bradshaw as WWE champion? Because he was eliminated in only 38 seconds here. We knew we were going to change his character, but we had no idea whether it was going to take off or not. So no. Uh, Shane wants to know, how did Vince feel about Sean's blade job? Was there any concern afterwards backstage? No concern. No, he was supposed to get color. That's what the match was designed to do. Jeff wants to know why was Cena on Cena on the poster here? He wasn't even in the final four of the match <sighs> because he's a draw and he's a star. Chris says, you've probably had this question before. How do you figure out which wrestler receives what number? 
Is it actually drawn? And then you decide the winner or another way. You start with a sheet of paper and you look at guys and you decide who's going to go in first, second, and then you decide who's going in last. You figure out who's winning and then you fill in the blanks. Not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. You just want us to tell stories in between and make sure that you have stories presented in high spots in different parts of the match. But if telling a story early on works for a couple guys and they're in early and out early, it just, it's like putting a puzzle together. Kyle Fields wrote real talk. This is the most tightly booked rumble ever. There are no dead spots. Was this one laid out by someone different than later ones? This was laid out by myself, Pat Patterson, Shane McMahon, and John Laurinaitis. Well, I think it was a sleeper of a Royal rumble. If you haven't watched Royal rumble Oh four in a while, I encourage you to do so. It is an underrated show. It's not one that WWE is going to talk about because Benoit won. Uh, did you, you know, we get lots of requests. Why don't you talk about Benoit? And you know, we, we just did. So my question is. How do you feel about WWE sort of drawing the line in the sand that they're not going to acknowledge Benoit and they're not going to talk about shows like this a and B, do you feel weird that we did? I understand WWE stance and it's kind of like R Kelly in the music industry. Um, everybody's going to have their opinions and they're all going to have their stance. And yes, I do feel a little weird about it. But it wasn't it wasn't just a Chris Benoit show. It was a Royal Rumble show that he happened to be a part of. And that's how I that's how I internalize it. And it's it's not celebrating any anything that, that he did. It's talking about, you know, him being a part of a major a major event. It was. It was a major event and it's worth watching. If you haven't, you need to fire it up and go watch it. Uh, I don't know how many more Chris Benoit topics we will necessarily tackle, but we're not really running from it. It just needs to make sense. And to me, this one made sense for us. It's the 15 year anniversary and it was a heck of a show and there's a lot of good stuff on it and it was a well done rumble. So hopefully you'll find time to watch it, but I certainly understand those who have decided that they don't want to. Uh, but next week we'll talk about something totally different. The one and only psycho Sid can't believe that we're actually doing this one. This has been one of our most requested topics. We've had it on the uh, polls for years and it finally won barely beating out Yoko. Barely. Did, did you think this would beat Yokozuna? I didn't, you know, I was, I was watching earlier early on and Yoko was, was ahead by a couple of percentage points. And then Sid just came through in the end. Is there a topic that you would like to see on the poll next week? I'll let you do that. Well, but a lot of our listeners will say, Hey, I want to talk about, I want to hear what Bruce wants to talk about people who really enjoyed like our Houston wrestling episode, because it was something you could tell you really wanted to talk about. Is there a topic or a show or a personality that you'd really like to talk about next week? Well, we're going to get to it and it's going to be the, uh, is it no way out or no more? The the next pay-per-view in 2004 where Eddie Guerrero wins the WWE championship. That's one I'd really like to talk about. It went down on February 15th, 2004. Uh, and I've already got it circled on our calendar, February 15th, 2019. So about a month from now, we're going to be covering that one. Uh, and it may or may not even be on a poll just because I know you really want to do it 
On top, of course, it's Eddie Guerrero and Brock Lesnar. Underneath, it's Kurt Angle, John Cena, and Big Show. Chavo working with Rey Mysterio, which is for the Cruiserweight title. Hardcore Holly in there with Rhino. Benjamin and Haas against the APA. Jamie Noble is going to wrestle Nydia. That's a real sentence. Uh, Rikishi and Scotty Tuhati are also going to be in there with the Basham brothers. So it's an interesting show, but a main event that people are still talking about. Uh, so stay tuned. That's coming your way next month. But if you want to find out what you might be hearing in two weeks, well, don't just hear about it. Go have some influence. Go vote right now on Twitter at Pritchard Show. You'd be glad you did. And we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. But if you haven't already, snatch up your tickets, man. Come see us tomorrow night, Colorado Springs, live at the social. It's January 19th, Saturday, January 19th, at Colorado Springs. And then, of course, next weekend, we're in both San Diego and Phoenix. And don't forget Atlanta the day before the Super Bowl. Tickets for all these shows are on sale right now at BrucePritchard.com. And Bruce, feels like it's about that time. It is about that time, so shaka Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.